In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Just as a complete aside before we begin this, you'll notice that Andrew's name is actually in the bulletin to preach today, but we swapped weeks a couple weeks ago, so nothing is wrong. This has been planned, and if you were hoping to hear him, I am sorry. You will have to wait. Up until six months ago, I had been meeting with several very sincere and very devout Jehovah's Witnesses once a week for a Bible study who were convinced that the doctrine of the Trinity was heretical and incompatible with true belief in God. We met for over a year and we discussed many parts of scripture and we rarely agreed on anything. I have never encountered such spiritual resistance in my life. It got to the point where I would pray fervently that they would forget our weekly study time together. And I would cringe when I saw their car park in my driveway. Because I was so weary of preaching the good news to people who would not see and who would not hear the truth. There were countless other differences in our beliefs, but for me, the belief in a triune God was perhaps the most difficult to articulate and a line that I fundamentally could not cross. The questions they had have been uttered by many before them. How can we reconcile that the Lord, the Lord who we here defined as one in the Shema, as having three persons? Can't you see that you are worshiping three different people? How can you explain that the Bible says that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation? Firstborn, right? Now, teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity is perilous enough. It's all too easy to slip into heresy one way or the other. Within the church, it's difficult. Outside of the church, with people who think that you are the heretic, while you think that you're defending orthodoxy, that's even more so. While I did my best to honestly and to carefully open the text to them, I confess that it does not seem like I was very successful if conversion was the goal. They hold to their faith and have not spoken to me since I have said that it is impossible for me to set aside the triune God. Why is that so important? I've had to prayerfully entrust these people into the Lord's most capable hands, and it grieves me. It grieves me to find that there are people who are honestly searching for the truth, even diligently searching, albeit selectively translated and edited, scriptures, only to turn away from their God in disbelief and remain in bondage to a twisted version of the law. I pray that one day we will meet them again as actual brothers and sisters in Christ with their eyes fully open and their ears ready to hear and our mouths all ready to worship the same Lord. But so it is today that we begin with careful consideration to look at our texts, to study with fresh eyes and open ears to what scripture shows us about the triune God, not with judgment on our lips for those who do not yet know the truth, but with soft hearts, yearning to be more like him who created us. Now, the Trinity is a doctrine 
within Orthodox Christianity that came about as a consequence of the things that we knew to be true about God. We know that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one, that the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus and by the Father, that Jesus has never been created but has existed within the Godhead forever, that Jesus was born into the world, fully God, yet fully man. He lived and died and rose again. These truths, just a couple of them, reveal glimmers of who God is. Yet you will find the term Trinity or Godhead or triune God nowhere in Scripture, and that's partially what makes this so difficult. Now, our reading from Isaiah today recounts a glimpse of Yahweh enthroned in glory, surrounded by magnificent seraphim, resounding in ceaseless praise, triune ceaseless praise, I might add, given the holy, holy, holy. The glory of the Lord is so immense that the foundations shake at the sound of his voice, and the entire place is filled with smoke. Understandably, Isaiah suddenly laments his own wickedness in the sight of such awesome holiness. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Can't we all relate to Isaiah just a little bit here? Haven't we, at some point in time, been reminded of just how big the gap is between us and God? I know I have, and I haven't even seen the fullness of his glory revealed the way Isaiah has. It is into this desperate hopelessness that Isaiah feels in this moment, this big chasm, that the Lord acts And Isaiah has his sin atoned for. It's an incredible grace in a most unexpected circumstance. You see, it was believed that no one could see the face of God and live. And here, Isaiah sees his face. He's confronted by his desperate need for forgiveness, his own wretchedness, and he finds himself not only still breathing, but also in right standing with God, his sins atoned for. It's no wonder to me that the moment the Lord speaks, Isaiah is ready to volunteer. And just as a side note, this passage is a particularly interesting one because Jesus brings it up again in John's Gospel. He speaks to the Pharisees about their hardness of hearts, their unresponsiveness, and he quotes another passage from Isaiah saying, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Essentially, Jesus is applying this holiness that we get described here, this holiness of Yahweh sitting on the throne. He applies it to himself, saying, that's my glory. Isaiah 6 and John 3 also each use the same phrase, high and lifted up, to describe the glory of God the Father and the glory that Jesus will attain on the cross. And that is no accident. This is not accidental language. This is a connection, okay? Now, if it isn't too much of a stretch, I might say that we, too, find ourselves drawn in close to God, despite God's awesome holiness, because the same glory resides in Jesus, who was willing to become incarnate, 
and to dwell among us. And he was content to offer himself to us, to cleanse us before we were put to work. But back to Isaiah. That's an aside. Back to Isaiah. Just to make sure that you were all paying attention, do you remember what it is that the Lord said? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who will go for us? This is plural language being used here by God. Plural language by God. Right? It's not a translation error. This isn't a mistake. If it catches your ears a little strange, then perhaps hearing another passage will ease your mind. This is the first part of Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Again, plural language, and this is God talking about God's self. Okay? So this plural language feels so foreign to our ears, but this is one of the clues that we get in Scripture that can affirm our belief in a triune God. And we get it from God himself. It's not like this is an interpretation. This is God speaking about God. So this is a God in three persons, equal, perfectly in communion with one another from before the foundations of this earth, working together to create life. Now, Paul's letter to the Romans offers us some further insight into the triune God, but in a very different way than Isaiah's vision. Right off the bat, if you're looking for the Trinity, you'll see that in this passage in Romans, Romans 8, you will find all three persons of the Trinity referenced. God the Father, God the Son, mentioned as Christ, and God the Spirit. The Spirit Paul is talking about here is none other than the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, the voice of the prophets, sent by God the Father and God the Son to his people on earth. Paul exhorts his fellow believers to actively live according to the Spirit, even going so far as to say that we ought to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Kill the body by the Spirit. Now, okay, Joy, that's great. But what does this teach us about God? Paul's letter here teaches us that it is the Holy Spirit that enables us to live in an entirely new way that enables us to reject and resist all sin and to embrace righteousness. We hear that it is the Holy Spirit who bears witness on our behalf that we are indeed God's own people. Now, shortly after these verses here in Romans 8, if you look further in this same chapter, Paul goes on to state that it is the Spirit himself who intercedes for us and for all of the saints even when we do not know how to pray. The Holy Spirit is our constant helper, our teacher, the very spirit of truth who Jesus promises us in John 14 dwells with you and will be in you. The living God, the one who made you and me and who loves us all beyond measure, promises to live inside of us. We will never be separated from God. (coughs) Amen to that. Now, Paul also speaks of us as being the children of God. And if you're like me, perhaps that phrase has become so common that you simply rush past it. But let's stop and linger for a moment. 
The Spirit, he goes on to tell us, bears witnesses that we are the children of God. And if we are children, heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs, co-heirs, some translations say. If we pick this apart, we can learn two more details about God. That Jesus Christ is God's only son and heir. And two, that God is Jesus's and our father. We are identifying some aspects of the various jobs each person of the Trinity does. Um, And we are affirming this inherent relational quality within the Godhead. It is a picture of unity and of service and of working together within the Trinity that we can see, hopefully, played out in our lives and the lives of the faithful and maybe even find ourselves invited into. Now, the gospel passage from John offers us a bit more even. And I cannot help but marvel at the connections being made here in our lectionary. The example of being born again is confusing and is a true stumbling block for Nicodemus, a ruling member of the Sanhedrin, referred to by Jesus as a teacher, as the teacher, perhaps, even of Israel. Not a dummy. Not a dummy. But he, was stum- he could not get past this. And I love what it says to those of us who have already been identified as children of God. As I was writing this sermon, I was taken in by the idea that our being born again is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. I spent a fair bit of time meditating on the idea that it is God, the Holy Spirit, working on our behalf to bring us into life eternal, much like all of our mothers did for us in laboring to bring us into this world, or perhaps for those of us who are mothers, the work that we did to bring our children into the world. Labor and delivery and the birth of new life is a universal example for all people. There is no one who is not affected by it, no one who does not understand it, no one who has not witnessed the cost either to themselves or to those that they love. It is true labor and work done for someone else's benefit. We have all been born, and we must also be born again. So what a beautiful picture of love and sacrifice that we see here that God does for us. And it goes on. If we are God's child in this picture, then we must be truly dependent upon him, like a baby is dependent upon their mother. It's that simple. It's a gift. It's a gift, and we have to receive. This this is childlike faith at its roots, this picture right here. This is what it means to be like a child, to be dependent upon God, to recognize that what we are being given is a gift, to receive it humbly, recognizing that we need this, and there's no way we can do this for ourselves. Going a step further, even, what a precious image it is for us that our spiritual birthday, the day that we are born again, is also the very day we are adopted into God's family forever. We find our forever home in him, and we get to cry, Abba, Father. 
That'll preach all day, every day. All day, every day. But as we heard today, Nicodemus isn't there yet. He can't see it. This confuses him. This troubles him greatly. And in trying to clarify for him, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. Again, plural language is back. Are you catching that thread? We have plural language so many different times here. Plural language is coming up again and again as God refers to himself. And it's almost too easy now, hopefully, to play spot the Trinity in this passage, right? We hear of the Spirit bringing forth new life. We see the Son teaching the teacher of Israel what it is that he, Jesus, is called to do, to be lifted up, which we know will be on the cross. And finally, we hear in arguably the most well-known verse in Scripture, John 3.16, and it continues into 17. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is what is at the heart of all of our passages today. That the one true God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, loves us and redeems us. The Holy Spirit encourages, teaches, intercedes, and brings forth new life. The Son is God's heir. He teaches, he heals, he died for us, And rose again, he sends the Spirit. The Father, our Father, is maker of all things, sends his Son to save the world, sends the Spirit into the world, and sustains us all. The triune God is God in three persons. The Trinity itself is perfect, selfless, unceasing, relational love that spills over onto us, and enables us to love one another. We can only serve from what we have, and we only have what we have received from God. I'll say that again, because that is the crux here. And I was reminded of this at the clergy retreat this week. We can only serve from what we have, and we only have what we have received from God. Thankfully, we have received nothing less than God himself, and he invites us into communion with him to be loved and to live in the fullness that we were always meant to live with the assurance that he has already done all that is needed. All we have to do is to receive him and love him and be ready to serve when we are called like Isaiah is. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Amen.